Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Joe Kennedy is known as the praying coach because as an assistant football coach in Point Orchard, Washington, he would go out after games at the 50-yard line and just pray by himself. And it was like a short prayer, like 30 seconds of prayer. But then some of the kids that played football with him would go out and join him. And before too long, there were even players from the opposing team who would come out and join him in prayer. And then all of a sudden, that became a really big deal. And in 2015, the superintendent at the school district told him that he couldn't do that anymore. Well, you know how it goes. Coach Kennedy said that he would continue to pray. And there was this back and forth until eventually he was put on administrative leave by the superintendent, a man named Aaron Lavelle. I think that all happened back in 2015, if I remember right. Coach Kennedy sued and ended up in this big legal battle. In 2022, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Coach Kennedy that the school district had violated his First Amendment right to freedom of religion. And about a month ago, Coach Kennedy returned to the team that he had helped coach and now has the right to go back out and pray at midfield. Well, kind of. Well, there's a bubble. He can pray by himself. <laughs> he can pray by himself, and other people can pray too. They just have to be 25 feet away from him. Why do you think they did that? I think they like the look of having like a big O, you know, on the field. Point uh, Orchard. <laughs> well, and that's not the Supreme Court's decision, right? That's how the school district and that superintendent, Aaron Lavelle, is now at another job in another place. But it's how the school district has decided that he can pray. It's a compromise with the O in uppercase. Anyways, the reason we're talking about this is you're looking at me like Well, I don't crazy. get the uppercase well, O. He, it's an uppercase O. He's in the middle of the O and everybody else is around him and they're 25 foot ring. Think about it. It's a shape of an O. Okay. People listening will get it. (laughs) (laughs) I still don't get it. Okay. Here's the point. We're actually looking at a number of stories today that have come out in the last month, and this is one of them, that the praying coach is back on the field once again. And you might expect us to have a conversation about the constitutionality of prayer, and we're not going to do that. The Supreme Court already ruled unanimously that he didn't do anything. No, six to three. Oh, six to three? Okay, there you go. So not unanimously. They ruled six to three that it was constitutional. I want to ask a more interesting question, which is, are public displays of faith good, normal, or commendable for Christians? Because I think if you talk to the average Christian, you'd get a wide variety of answers. Some people would say, yeah, of course you should be able to pray in public at something like a football game. And others could say, no, I have a big problem with that. And to illustrate the point, here's the things get real interesting. The superintendent, Lavelle, he goes to the same church as Joe Kennedy. Can you imagine how awkward that would be to go to the church with the guy that you put on administrative leave <laughs> for praying? Or can you imagine how awkward would be to go to a church where you couldn't follow the simple instructions of your boss to not <laughs> pray in the middle of a field. I wish I could have seen it. I mean, they had to be like sitting on opposite sides of the church or something. But church is going to be messy church. places. I think it'd be so messy. But isn't that interesting? You have two people, both Christians, both committed Christians following Jesus, trying to follow Jesus in their work and their life. And one of them is saying, hey, what you're doing on the football field with this public prayer thing is totally inappropriate. That's not the way of Jesus. And you've got the other one, the coach saying, oh no, 
oh, this is what Jesus wants me to do. He wants me to be in the middle of the field, publicly praying and thanking him for whatever happened during the game for good or for ill. And do you think that this is something that's changed in the last few decades? Because think back just in the 1950s, we were putting in God we trust on our money. We were adding under God to our Pledge of Allegiance. The National Prayer Breakfast was happening. So everybody was very comfortable with religion in public life. There would be prayers and commencement. Everybody was comfortable with it. And now no one is comfortable with it. Like you said, we're not talking about the constitutionality of it. We're just saying what happened that caused everybody to get the EBGBs when somebody practices their faith in public. Another example of this that we've mentioned before is in 2001, after the 9-11 attacks, Billy Graham was invited to speak at Washington, D.C. at an event publicly mourning what had happened. But then just 10 years later, there's another big public event, this time in New York City. It's New York City's remembrance of what had happened on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And they intentionally, this was a choice, they intentionally chose to have no one of any religious background present speaking or praying or doing anything of any religious matter. And it went relatively unnoticed. But again, it illustrates the point that even Even in 2001, it would be expected that you'd have a pastor come pray in an event like this. But then in 2011, that pastor's no longer welcome to be there. I think another interesting comparison is that the very next year, there's someone else kneeling during football games. Mm, You're thinking of Colin Kaepernick, the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers that was kneeling as a protest of injustice in America. Now, obviously, people on the right were not big fans of Colin Kaepernick, and no. it wasn't as though this was widely accepted. What he was doing was really good. But Do you remember j- when Mike Pence went to the game and was just sitting there waiting for him to kneel and then got up and made a big public demonstration about how he wasn't <laughs> going to sit there and walked out? Well, he knew he was going to kneel. It was all just for television cameras. What I find fascinating about the comparison is, in this case, looking at the left, because people on the left would decry Joe Kennedy kneeling to pray in the middle of a football field, but they were celebrating largely what Colin Kaepernick was doing kneeling during the national anthem. In other words, for some people, the public expression of faith is seen as a public threat, but the very same action, kneeling in protest, is not seen as a threat. In fact, it's seen as something to be celebrated. But if you were comfortable with Colin Kaepernick and uncomfortable with Joe Kennedy, wouldn't you say that's because Joe Kennedy had expression of faith and Colin Kaepernick did the same posture? He was kneeling, but it wasn't about faith. Well, what I find fascinating is that if you talk to First Amendment, lawyers, they would say, no, these are actually pretty much the same thing. Yes, different motives behind why they're doing what they're doing. But in terms of the First Amendment right to express free speech and to express your religious beliefs, let me just actually read a quote here from Lori Windham, and she's the senior counsel for the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. She said, one of the big problems in this case, she's talking about the Joe Kennedy case, is that kneeling in prayer was seen as coercive. In other words, people thought somehow him kneeling in the middle of the field was forcing other people to have have to participate in his religious act. And she goes on, she says, but other expressions, and she's thinking of Colin Kaepernick, but she says a high five, a political protest, those are all seen as okay. Religious freedom means you'll see other people's religious expression. The Bremerton School District didn't seem to think that people had that right. Unlike protest, religious speech was treated as uniquely dangerous, and school officials thought they'd be sued if they allowed it. It was treated as asbestos, something from a past era you need to cover up. People need to be able to express their religion at work without getting punished, including kneeling in prayer after a game. When there's free speech, you're going to see things you disagree with. And interestingly, the Free Press did an interview with Joe Kennedy. They posed the Colin Kaepernick question to him, and he kind of begrudgingly said, well, yeah, I don't like what he did, but it's no different than what I'm doing. He has the right to kneel down the same way that I do. And in addition to understanding that he and Colin Kaepernick had some similarities, even if they disagreed with one another, he also saw that that decision by the court didn't just protect his religious freedom, but it protected everybody's religious freedom. He said in that Free Press article, the way the Supreme Court ruled gives all Americans, not just the ones here in Bremerton, but across Washington and across the United States, a huge win for religious liberty. That's all religious liberty, not just Christians. This applies to Jews and Muslim, you name it, pick a group. They all have the exact same freedom as I do now, and they can do that in the public square. I think a lot of times we misunderstand the First Amendment, which says that government cannot establish a religion, and it does say that, but there are two clauses in that First Amendment. One says the government can't force a national religion, but the other one says that every individual has the ability and the right to practice their religion. It's known as the free exercise clause. You are free to exercise your religion, not just in a church, but in every area of your life. 
Yeah. So just to name what you're saying, if all we had was the disestablishment clause that says, hey, the state can't set up a church, that would be religious tolerance. The state can't set up a church and we'll tolerate your religion. But the free exercise clause is important because it goes one step further and says, we won't just tolerate you. You actually have a First Amendment right to exercise your faith in public. And so this is a really important distinction. But here's what I'm getting at and why we're using these examples. It's really interesting because if you look at the right and the left, they're going to probably agree or disagree about Kaepernick and Joe Kennedy. And yet the right is the same, at least constitutionally speaking, they're expressing the same right. But for some reason, those on the left want to say, if it's an expression of protest or an expression of yourself, then great, you can go kneel. And the right wants to say, well, if it's an expression of prayer, then I guess that's okay, but you can't protest. So I'm pointing out that these are interesting things that bear on our question of what is appropriate for Christians to do in public spaces. People are wanting to relegate faith to your interior life or to inside of a church building. Frank Bruni, the New York Times columnist, famously wrote in, I think it was in 2015. It's the same year as Joe Kennedy. He wrote before the Joe Kennedy case, but it's the same year. Because Bruni was writing it in relationship to the case Obergefell versus Hodges, which eventually became the case that the Supreme Court ruled that gay marriage was a constitutional right. But he said this leading up to that, I support the right of people to believe what they do and say what they wish in their pews, homes, and hearts. Again, that was in the New York Times. So yes, I think we should tolerate, as you put it, your religion, but you can't practice it outside of the church. Yeah, so kind of an addendum to the free exercise clause. (laughs) You can freely exercise your religion in private, in your own heart, or inside of your own churches, but religion does not belong in the public square. So he would probably side with the superintendent and saying, hey, Christians, please go worship God. Please believe in Jesus in your heart. That's totally fine, but don't bring that to the football game. And again, let's keep all this in perspective. We're not talking about the constitutionality of it. What we're more interested in today in our conversation is why people are so uncomfortable in public expressions of faith. So let's take another example. This has to do with a California bill that was passed by the state legislature. It's known as AB 957. And that sounds really boring, but it was anything but boring. It was incredibly contentious. Yeah, so it was contentious because it had to do with whether a parent could keep custody of their child if they didn't affirm their gender identity. Now, as these things go, you get a media storm and you've got people on both sides making all kinds of outrageous statements, but let's try to be fair-minded about what this bill was actually doing. It was only about custody disputes in divorce court. And it's saying that when the state is settling a custody dispute, it has to take into account whether each parent affirms the preferred gender identity of the child alongside all the other normal factors that they would consider when they're thinking about a custody dispute. So imagine a couple getting divorced and they've got a 12-year-old daughter, but that girl is beginning to transition and identify as a boy. And the mom or dad is for it and the other one is against this transition. The court has to take into consideration the one who is against it, and it's kind of a negative mark against them. It doesn't mean they're going to lose custody, but it might lead to that. Yeah, you know, if the parent that's affirming the gender identity can't provide for the child, doesn't have a stable home, is abusive to the child, has a bajillion points against them, then they're probably still going to lose custody of the child despite the fact that the other parent doesn't affirm their gender identity. But if it's a close case, the unaffirming parent is going to lose the battle. And so critics are saying this is going to be used to coerce parents that's infringing on parental rights to, well, you know, parent their kid in accordance with their own values. And some people are claiming that this bill is going to be used to take trans kids out of Christian homes, but there's really nothing in the bill that suggests that or allows for that. But a Christian parent could be penalized for their faith conviction that a child cannot transition from one sex to the other because there was no religious exemption in this bill. What the authors of the bill were saying, in a sense, is that your faith is a private matter. But when it comes into public courts, then all that matters is your child's health as defined by us and not your faith. Yeah, so Scott Weiner, he's from San Francisco. Yeah, Lowenbold, shocker. Big shocker, who has no children but co-authored this bill. He began to make some bombastic claims, essentially attaching parents who don't agree with their child's gender identity to abusive behaviors. This is what he said. He said, if we don't pass this bill, this is about not having to get involved after a child has been beaten and had their arm broken or after they've been kicked out. This is about trying to make sure that something terrible doesn't happen to them. So he's implying if you put a child into a non affirming house, the end result is bodily harm. 
So what does this tell us about the moral framework that people are operating from, like the moral framework that gives them the basis for their argument? Here is Assemblywoman Lori Wilson, again, of the California State Legislature. She co-authored the bill and introduced it. She summarizes kind of the moral logic behind it. Here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice that a parent's faith is not a public concern anymore. The thing that is a public concern is what's happening privately inside of the life of the child. Let's listen to this together. That parents affirm their children. They have since the dawn of time. Typically, it happens when their um, gender identity expression matches their biological gender. But what happens is when it doesn't, that's when the affirmation starts to wane. And that's what we're dealing with here Although it's called the TGI bill, they're not mentioned anywhere in the law. What's mentioned in the law is the child's gender identity and expression and the parent's affirmation of that, whatever it is, because that is our duty as parents to affirm our children. Do you think your duty as a parent to affirm your children, Patrick? That's terrible parenting. <laughs> I think the assembly woman and I have maybe some fundamental disagreements on what parenting looks like. As of recording this, my daughter broke her arm earlier this week and oh, she's getting bummer. some pins put in and it's, you know, it's just heartbreaking to see her seven year old in so much pain. But she broke her arm jumping on the bed. Mm. And she fell off the bed. Did you affirm her jumping on that bed, Patrick? Well, I did not affirm it. And I told her afterwards, hey, this is one of the reasons why we don't like you jumping on the bed is because you can fall and hurt yourself in this way. And she did something interesting. She changed her story. She said, well, I wasn't really jumping on the bed. It was just that I wasn't focusing on what I was doing because I wasn't focusing. That's why I fell. Now, here's why this is relevant. She knows that I'm not going to affirm <laughs> her right to jump on bed. So she tried to change the story. This isn't about jumping on beds. It's about staying focused <laughs> when you're playing. It's a silly example, but no, I'm not going to affirm your right to jump on a bed, no matter how much you think you want to jump on the bed. Well, and I know we're a little far astray here, oh, but we we'll get back in a second. But here's what I enjoy. Your, your daughter is jumping on her bed. She falls off and hurts herself. Her arm is broken and she gets a little lecture from her dad while she's in pain about, oh, I told you this was going to happen. <laughs> I told you, you should have listened to me. Now you're suffering the consequences of not listening to your father while well, she's there with a compound fracture. You've dilated time a bit here. The corrective <laughs> conversation came later. It was not my immediate response to my poor daughter with her broken arm. But here's the important part. I want you to catch what Assemblywoman Lori Wilson said in there because it's easy to miss. She at one point makes it very clear that there are no religious exemptions. Why? She said, because what's important is what your child feels on the inside. In other words, whatever I feel on the inside privately is actually a matter of grave public concern. And whatever I believe religiously is not of public value. That is a private concern, which needs to be of lower importance than uh, the internal life. Which is the same thing Frank Bruni was telling us back in 2015 in the New York Times. Let's keep your faith in your pew and in your heart and in your home. Let's keep it private, but let's don't allow it in into the public square because it's unwelcomed here. But what we do want to bring into the public square is your own personal story, your how you feel, your interior life. That is a really big deal to us. And so now one more story on this before we kind of get into how this came about and why this big transition has taken place in our culture in the last few decades. And this story is about Coco Goff. You may know her name even if you're not a big tennis fan because she is the 19-year-old American. American who recently won the Women's U.S. Open Championship. And she's the youngest American to win the U.S. Open since Serena Williams. She'd just come off a really heartbreaking loss in the French Open. Now, Coco Goff, if you're not familiar with her, is very open and public about her faith. And it seems like she has a real substantive faith, not the athlete, touchdown Jesus kind of faith. But everybody knows about it. I mean, think about somebody like Tim Tebow. Everybody knows about Tim Tebow's faith. Well, everybody in tennis, they know about Coco Goff's faith. And so after she won the U.S. Open, she goes to the sideline, she gets down onto her knees and bends her head in prayer, just begins praying. And afterwards, she talked about her prayer life in tennis, and she's actually got great theology. It's not prosperity theology, God gives me wins. This is what she said. She said, I don't pray for results. 
That's pretty remarkable, if you think about it. I mean, just step back. I would be praying for results. <laughs> should have prayed for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's right. She says, I just ask that I get the strength to give it my all. Whatever happens, happens. I'm so blessed in this life. I'm just thankful for this moment. I don't have any words for it, to be honest. So Coco Goff afterwards, she publicly says that she was praying. Anybody who's covering tennis would know that Coco Goff is a very public Christian. Again, think Tim Tebow. And yet, shortly after the game, after that interview, ESPN Sports Center tweets out a video of Coco Goff praying. And this is what they write. At Coco Goff took a moment to soak it all in after winning her first Grand Slam title, heart emoji. So in other words, ESPN didn't recognize that she was praying. They saw her kneeling there on the side of the court and interpreted that as just soaking it in, just overwhelmed by the emotion, soaking in the crowd's applause, taking in all the glory. And that's a big miss. Maybe you excuse them for it, but here's where it gets even more interesting is that when people pointed it out, hey, Coco Goff's a Christian, she's praying. Isn't it pretty obvious? They never corrected it. They didn't take it down or make a different kind of post that explained that she was praying. And so people started to go public with their criticism. Tony Dungy, the football coach who has a very public faith himself, tweeted this. I hate to break this to you, Sports Center, but Coco Golf was not soaking it all in at this moment. She was praying. She has been very open about her Christian faith in the past. It seems pretty obvious what she is doing here. I mean, of course he's right, but let's ask a more interesting question, and that is, why did SportsCenter say that what she was doing was soaking in the glory when, in reality, she was giving glory to God? <laughs> I think it's an incredibly fascinating question. And so, of course, you've got your right-wing media pundits who give the nefarious answer, which is, you know, these evil people, they don't like public prayer, and so they're intentionally choosing to misrepresent it. And, you know, I guess the cynical read is possible, but I think there's probably a far more reasonable answer, and it's this. We have become so post-Christian that intelligent journalists, at the highest caliber of sports journalism, the intelligent journalists quite literally cannot recognize prayer. Not that they won't recognize it, they're seeing it and they don't recognize it as being prayer. Or at the very least, I suppose maybe they feel squeamish about mentioning it. But to me, it suggests that they don't have a place in their mental framework of reality for someone giving thanks to God. And so when they see her with bent knees, head lowered, hands clasped, they simply assume that she's taking in all the glory when, as you said earlier, Keith, she's actually giving it all away. In our culture right now, we have, I think, what you could call the God gap. Charles Murray, the sociologist, said that we are a nation of Indians. He's talking about people in Southeast Asia. It's one of the most religious countries in the world who are ruled by Swedes. He's thinking about the European country with some of the lowest religious participation in the world. In other words, our elites have no religion, but the nation, by and large, still has a lot of religion. And so the elites look at Coco Gauff and don't know what she's doing. And this God gap has created a language gap. I mean, if you say something like sin, a lot of people think of maybe a big chocolatey dessert. Or if <laughs> you talk about heaven or hell, things like that, salvation, people are familiar with the words. It's not like they'd say, I've never heard that before. Of course they have. But they have completely different meanings that they attach to those words. And that's what happened when she got down on her knees and prayed, is that people saw the same thing but they interpreted it completely differently. So let's take this tangle of news stories all from the last month and try to start making some sense out of them. What we're seeing in American culture writ large is that faith, which was once public, has now become private. And what was once private, your inner life and your inner feelings, has now become a matter of public concern. And that reality has become so pervasive that when we see someone praying, we can't even recognize it as prayer. She's praying in public, and no one's offended by it, by the way, because they don't even know what she's doing. They assume that it's some sort of internal expression of her glory soaking it all in. It's a really interesting turn of events that I think, like Keith was saying, expresses something about our cultural moment. And where we want to go with these stories is just asking, you know, how did this come about? Where did this come from? Why are we in a place where now faith is private and the inner life is public and we don't even recognize faith when we see it? How did we get here? And you could tell that story in a lot of different ways, but here's the TLDR. Christianity has become a victim of its own success. We're here 
in this bizarre moment, precisely because we are deeply Christianized and Christianity has deeply shaped our cultures in ways that we're not sure about. But to show you how, we're going to need to do a little bit of history, or as Keith likes to call it. You ready to go to private school, brother? We're going to go to private school, boys and girls. But I will say this, is I think this is pretty interesting. If you're like us, you're not just interested in where we are, but how did we get here? And what changed over the years to put us in this situation? Because you don't have to go that far back in time when your interior life, you know, your thoughts and your feelings and your anxieties and all were something you didn't talk about, that that was private and your faith was very public. And now we're at just the opposite moment where your faith is supposed to be something you do in your home, in your heart, in your pew. But what's happening inside? All your feelings, all your thoughts, all your identities, all your anxieties, all your mental health issues are something that are publicly discussed, whether it's in conversation over dinner or in newspapers and magazines and journals or on podcasts. Everybody is talking about how they feel on the inside. How do we go through this transformation? I can hear the critiques saying, oh, you don't think, you know, someone's feelings matter. That's not what we're saying. What we're trying to say here is that not too long ago, someone's internal feelings would not have been a matter of public discourse or something that the government needs to defend or something that people would find particularly interesting, interesting enough to make autobiographies best all-time sellers. (laughs) It wouldn't have been the case. So if you took a time machine all the way back to, let's say, the early era of the Israelite monarchy, so we're going to go back about a thousand years, BC, 1500s. If you took a time machine back there, you would discover a world where religion was not just public, religion was political. You could not have separated the two. To suggest that your religion and your politics were two different worlds, you would get blank stares. Like, what do you mean? What are you saying to me? And so there's some great examples of this. There's more than we could count, but I want to highlight a few. Let's actually go to the earliest law code, the Code of Hammurabi, which you probably remember from your public school days. Yes, yes, I do. He did a little Hammurabi. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, even us public school kids have heard of Hammurabi. I thought the Hammurabi law code predated 1000 BC, though. I should have gone even further back. Oh, oh, am I correcting the private school kid? Chalk one up for the public school because I'm pretty sure the Hammurabi Law Code is one of the first ancient written documents we have. It's not one of the first, see, this is why I love being private school. It's not one of the first (laughs) written documents. It's one of the first law codes that we have. Are you sure it's not one of the first written documents? Because I can go to Mr. Google. Listener, look it up and tell us. Listeners, in the gap of a second that you just heard, Keith and I went to Google, and it turns out I was right. Well, you weren't right about the date, but you were right that Hammurabi's law code is one of the first written law codes, but not one of the first written documents. Yes, correct. Okay, back to the main thing. I was close. What we're looking for here is the merger of religion and politics, that these two things weren't considered separate. So if you actually see the Stella that has the Code of Hammurabi on it, at the top of it, what you'll notice is the god Shamash, who's kind of the highest god, handing the law code down to Hammurabi. Now, this is really important because it's communicating via visuals. Where does the law come from? It comes from God. And so religion, politics, they're all merged. But if you actually read the document itself, which Keith told me I can't read this whole thing, so I won't for everybody's sake, but if you read it, what you'll discover is that it's all about how the gods being great and good and wonderful and just, they've passed down this law code to Hammurabi so that he can rule justly. Again, you're seeing religion and politics are not separate. I'll read one little line. It's talking about two gods, Anu and Bel. It says, then Anu and Bel called me by name, Hammurabi, the exalted prince who feared God. I mean, catch that. Part of his qualification to be a just ruler is that he fears God. These are one thing, to bring about the rule of righteousness in the land, to destroy the wicked and the evildoers so that the strong should not harm the weak. And it goes on again, merging the king's rule with the divine rule, and it's just continually highlighting the idea that politics and religion, these are not different fields. Is that the same thing when you see in the Middle Ages where the Pope crowns Charlemagne? Yeah. That the church has both spiritual and temporal authority. Yeah. Or even today, you see that in Islam, because that's one of the big arguments inside of Islam, is how do you secularize it? How do you separate the church and state? Because most Islamic nations have Islamic governments. They literally are theocracies. That's exactly right. You're talking about divine right of rule. What are we trying to say? The Babylonian Enlightenment, when we're getting these amazing law codes, it was not lit by human reason. It was lit by the gods. 
because politics and religion were one thing. Another example, this is actually the image of God, which we're all familiar with from the book of Genesis. The Bible isn't the only place that talks about the image of God. We actually have some ancient statues from Syria that depict ancient kings, and underneath it, it describes the king as the image of God. And this is the justification for his rule. I'm the image of God, and you're all the peons, and so you need to follow the image of God and follow my political rule and my political reign. The Bible was subversive because it comes along and says, oh, no, 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 not just kings are made in the image of God, all people are made in the image of God. But even that is an incredibly political statement. Again, we're just highlighting religion and politics, one thing, not separable. Is that the same kind of thing we see in Daniel chapter 3 when there's a golden statue that Mm. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow down to? And kind of the common thought is that that golden statue was of Nebuchadnezzar, the king himself, and he was the image of God, and he would put these statues of himself throughout his territory to kind of declare his ownership of the territory and to receive worship. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to do is bow down to that image. Yeah, you know, dogs pee on fire hydrants and Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar built giant gold statues. <laughs> but it's exactly right. I mean, the idea for us of worshiping a ruler is so foreign. I mean, it's putting two things together that we don't associate, religion and politics. But the idea that a ruler was divine was incredibly common. And really, Rome brought this to its absolute pinnacle because the Caesars were all viewed as gods. In fact, after they died, it's probably all fabricated, but people would declare that they saw shooting stars. And this was a sign of their apotheosis, that the human king had now become a divine being living alongside the gods. And this is why throughout that period, people were expected not just to pledge their loyalty to Caesar, but to worship Caesar as their Lord and Savior. And that's why the Christians were persecuted, because they refused to offer incense to Caesar. They didn't mind obeying the laws, paying their taxes, doing the things that Rome expected citizens to Taking do. Taking care of the poor. They were the opposite of a public nuisance, whatever they were. The problem was they wouldn't acknowledge that Caesar was God. But when you said apotheosis, here's what it made me think of is that in the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., there's the apotheosis of George Washington. Yeah, the and painting. if you look up in the very top, have you been there or to see it? If you look up in the very top in the center of it, there is Washington painted on the ceiling. It's absolutely beautiful with the gods of the nations. And so there's this instinct inside of us to want to make our human rulers into divine rulers. And actually by highlighting that, you're showing how weird it is that we want to separate religion and politics. We do almost have a natural intuition that somehow the political and the religious do merge together. But we're living in a very different kind of culture that like we've already said, has been shaped by Christianity in profound ways, and that's part of why we have divided religion and politics. But we'll get there. But by the George Washington example, it also shows you don't have to go all the way back to Hammurabi mm. necessarily, right? This kind of thinking was true in 1500 or 1700 BC, but it's also true at the founding of our nation. And that instinct to combine the political and the religious ruler, isn't that what Jesus one day will be? Well, yes. <laughs> I think that's part of where we have to end up landing the plane is talking about how Christians do keep religion and politics merged together. But before we get there, let's just let's keep telling our story of how did it happen? How did it happen that religion and public life got divorced from one another? By the way, if you want another story of religion and politics merging, just go read Acts 16. It's this fantastic story about how there's a silversmith named Jason and people in Ephesus where he's making silver statues of Artemis. People in Ephesus are turning to Jesus, and as a result, they're no longer worshiping Artemis of the Ephesians, and it causes a riot because the city's convinced that if all these Christians stop worshiping Artemis, it's going to cause civil unrest. Artemis is going to stop blessing the city. The city's going to fall apart. Now, that sounds ridiculous to us. The idea that if you don't worship your God, your city's going to fall apart because we've separated religion and politics. But even in Acts 16, you see it right there. They thought that worshiping the right God was politically important. And this is why the Christians were persecuted and executed. It wasn't because they were uncivil. It wasn't because they didn't take care of the poor. It wasn't because they didn't pay their taxes. It was because they worshiped a different God. And that was a public political claim that got you executed. Okay, so we've established that politics and religion used to be absolutely united. Now they're divorced. How did that happen? Yeah, so to answer that question, we need to talk about the birth of you called the birth of the inner life, the birth of the self, the birth of psychology. What I mean when I say this is, and Keith said this earlier, for most of history, someone's inner life wouldn't be considered that interesting. 2,000 years ago, if Prince Harry wants to write his autobiography, people would have raised their eyebrows and said, why in the world would I care 
about that. I, I they don't wouldn't need, care what he did. They would care what right? he did. Wars that a king won yes. or even marriages and offspring produced, but not about his psychological trauma. Which is what the whole book's about. <laughs> <laughs> right. Not about himself in a personal way. Yeah. And so there are scholars much, much, much more intelligent than Keith and I who have tried to trace when do people start thinking about themselves as selves? When did people start finding the inner life as something interesting? And let's go one step further. At what point did they start seeing the inner life as not just something to share, but something to be protected? And every scholar, they trace it back to the Bible. This is our doing. (laughs) We made this. And so if you go through a backwards line, you can go to places like Romans 7, where Paul seems to be describing, depending on your interpretation, some sort of internal battle between himself and his desire to sin. Or you can go to Romans 8, where he talks about the battle in his own inner self between the flesh and the spirit. So let's just start with Jesus. One of the sins that Jesus targeted that really disgusted him was the sin of hypocrisy. Now, a hypocrite in ancient Greece was just a play actor, someone who pretended to be someone they weren't in the context of a play. But that idea of a hypocrite, Jesus used to criticize people who pretended to be more religious than they are. But think about this. Jesus is talking about their motive, not just what they did, but why they did it. So he says to the Pharisees, you worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. So you see, he's created this inner life where they should examine themselves and examine their motives. Now, what's interesting, I think, is that when he says that to them, you worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. That's a quotation from Isaiah. So you already have back in the Old Testament, the idea of God saying, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, that you can see the interior life developing even back then. This is a fascinating conversation, but you can trace it all the way back to the Old Testament, to the prophets, to the wisdom literature, this notion that people have an inner life, that they have inner motives, and that the motives actually matter, not just the action themselves. And by the way, that your inner motives are what will, in the end, determine what you do publicly. So Jesus also says, likewise, every good tree bears fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. He's talking about your inner life. He's saying, hey, what's happening on the inside, it's going to produce either good things or bad things on the outside. And why we're highlighting this is because this was rather unusual in the ancient world to take the inner life and inner motives so seriously. And not just seriously, but as something to be discussed and thought about and explored via writing. So then maybe it shouldn't be a surprise that one of the first autobiographies ever written was by a guy named Augustine, one of the church fathers. He lived in North Africa. In fact, he rose to be a bishop of the church. He was born in the 350s and died about 430. So he was alive during the fall of the Roman Empire. But one of the most famous books he wrote, and I really enjoyed it when I read it, but it's been several years, is called The Confessions. And what he was doing was processing how he came to faith and how he grew in it. Faith. It is very much about his interior life, his motives, his thoughts, his fears. He puts it all down in a book. And that was crazy to do at that time. But it shouldn't surprise us that a Christian is one of the first people to start talking about the inner life in that way. And it would suggest that Christians around him were probably talking in similar ways. He's just one of the very first people to put pen to paper. And like he said, the historians in the room say, well, it's not the first autobiography. Okay, true enough. People wrote about their exploits. Look at the amazing things I did, but no one found the internal inner workings of the self to be interesting enough to write about it. And that's why Augustine really is a first. It's that he's not just describing his exploits, he's letting us have a window into his heart. And importantly, the centerpiece of the confessions is when he's converted. And rather than just giving a very bland description, he gives this profound description of how God's grace hit him like a lot. I mean, you should go read it himself. He's hearing these children play and they're saying these words and he opens up his Bible and it goes to the right verse and God reveals himself to him. And it's a beautiful story, but it's very internal. It's happening inside of his heart. And that idea that God's grace is coming into your heart and that it's transforming you and that your internal experience of God's grace is the thing that makes your public expression of faith true really begins to take off in the Enlightenment period. You end up having figures like Jonathan Edwards, who writes, you can go read it, it's a very short document, it's called A Personal Narrative, and he describes himself essentially going off into the woods and finding Jesus. It's a very similar experience. So he's describing his emotions. He's describing what's happening inside of his heart. And he's describing a internal experience of God's grace that he takes to be the sign of his faith that he uses publicly.
We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. But today, I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together, that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. Okay, so fast forward then up to the Enlightenment, and you're talking about, say, the 1700s, and one of the most famous American theologians lived at the time. He was a pastor theologian. His name was Jonathan Edwards. He lived in Northampton, Massachusetts, where he pastored a church there, and they saw great revivals that broke out. This is all called the First Great Awakening, and Edwards wrote it all down. He was the theologian of revivalism, and what he talked about in his books, including one very short one called A Personal Narrative, narrative is about how people's inward life was changed by the gospel. And he would trace how they felt before they became a Christian, the crisis of becoming a Christian, and then how they felt after becoming a Christian. In fact, he tells his own story. In a sense, he would go out on these long walks or on horseback in the woods and deal with Jesus in his interior life. He would speak from his heart to Jesus. And that's how he describes becoming a Christian, not just kind of bowing a knee or being a part of a certain family or being a part of a certain tribe, but an inward conviction that the gospel was real. And he fully expected that gospel to transform someone's interior state. His other very famous book is called Religious Affections. The title itself should tell you everything you need to know. I actually think it's a fantastic book for what it's worth. But here's the point. What happened inside of his heart was what really, really mattered. That was the sign that God was at work in him. And this was a different way of thinking. You go back into the medieval era, being a Christian just pretty much meant I was born in Europe and I occasionally attended the Latin Mass. Religious Affections is one of my top five books of all time. I haven't read it recently, but I used to read it over and over and As long over. as we're recommending Jonathan Edwards' books, Charity and Its Fruits. Oh, you can't go wrong reading Edwards. Now, let's just acknowledge that he was a slaveholder, and so you've got kind of weird stuff. I don't know how to process all that, but I don't want to just go on and not acknowledge that there's some significant issues there. What are we highlighting here? Christianity gave us the idea of an internal life, and it even went a step further and said, what happens in your heart is of public import. If you want to be a Christian, you need the internal experience, which should then be the sign of something public. I'm a Christian, I'm a member of this church, and now I'm in good standing. Another example of inward experiences of faith being used publicly comes from Alada Equiano, and this is around the exact same time as Jonathan Edwards. Now, his story is very, very different. He was born in Africa, he was captured, and he was put on a slave ship and shipped across the Atlantic to North America, which, if you know anything about the history, was absolutely absolutely awful, 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 awful. But while he's on this slave ship, he actually has a conversion experience, which again, he writes a personal narrative, his personal story, and he describes his conversion this way. He says, in this deep consternation, the Lord was pleased to break in upon my soul with his bright beams of heavenly light. And in an instant, as it were, removing the veil and letting light into a dark place, I saw clearly with the eye of faith, the crucified savior bleeding on the cross at Mount Calvary. The scriptures became an sealed book. I saw myself a condemned criminal under the law, which came with its full force. I saw the Lord Jesus Christ in his humiliation loaded and bearing my reproach, sin, and shame. It was given me at that time to know what it was to be born again. Christ was revealed to my soul as the chiefest among 10,000. So here's an example of someone, again, writing about an internal experience. And 
I'm afraid some people are going to hear us describing this as like we're mocking these experiences. We're not. We're saying these are real things. These are really good. I mean, <laughs> Christianity created this. It gave us the idea of a self. But interestingly, that idea of self in an internal life is coming out of people's conversion experiences. But guess what? He used that private experience, that internal experience to great public good because he used that experience of conversion to turn the tables on the slavers and say, are you going to enslave someone who has experienced the power of God's grace? Does that not prove that I'm a human? Does does that not prove that I have immeasurable dignity and worth? Does it not prove that I'm just like you? So there you see two things. One, Christianity gives us this internal reality, but it's one of these first instances where what's happening internally is then used to make a public case for law, how we should rule over our society. And America's founding documents protect people's right to this interior life. Listen to the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So the pursuit of happiness is the outward pursuit of inward desires. And the Declaration of Independence acknowledged that we are all different people, we all have different interior desires, and we all pursue those in a way that makes us happy, now living in relationship inside of a community. In fact, Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, or at least he's the one given credit for it, others contributed to it, which we'll get to here in just a moment, he goes on to argue that your interior desires, your wants, your aspirations, your goals are so important that if a government were to try to suppress those or deny those, that we have the right to overthrow that government because how dare they get in the way of your interior desires? So again, here's the Declaration of Independence. That to secure these rights, remember the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So government exists to secure the right to pursue happiness. He says, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So from the people, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, in other words, when a government is destructive of your right to pursue your own happiness, well, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it. So the people can overthrow that government and institute a new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So again, this is a historically wild claim. Your interior life, your pursuit of happiness is so important that the government needs to recognize that, honor it, protect it, and if it doesn't, it should be overthrown. You cannot imagine something like this being written just a hundred years earlier. The idea that the government was there to protect and honor and defend your happiness? Well, no way. The government's job was to keep civil order and to protect the rule of the king. <laughs> this is wild stuff. What I want you to see is that this actually comes out of Christianity. Christianity is the one that gives us the idea of an interior self and says that the self is something that should be protected and that the self is something that should be defended. But here's where things get really interesting. In an earlier draft of the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson began it slightly differently. I'm going to read you the original draft. We hold these truths to be self-evident. No. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, that all men are created equal. So did you catch that? In the original, he roots all of his claims by saying these are sacred claims. He sends off this document to Benjamin Franklin, who's recovering from gout, by the way, and Benjamin Franklin gets out his pen and he scratches out sacred and replaces it with self-evident. And what's the significance of that? I'm assuming it's because sacred is a religious term. And so Jefferson was rooting the rights of people in God. And what Franklin was doing is saying, no, they are judged and appreciated by human beings. Like we are the ones who recognize them. They're not rooted in God. Yeah. I mean, just think about the difference. In the original, it's grounded in divine revelation. This is a sacred truth. It comes from God. But now what's it rooted in? 
well, my own reason. It's mm. self-evident to me. It's an internal truth. In other words, it's coming from the inside of self. This is why we treat all people equally instead of coming from divine law. And part of why this matters is divine law doesn't merely come with the claim that we should value the self and that the self is valuable. It also says a lot of things about how you should order the self and how you should run your internal life. But the minute you take away the divine claim, now you can just say, no, your job is to do whatever you want to do. And it's not coming from any divine book. So whatever that divine book says about your pursuit of happiness and what it should entail or not entail, that doesn't really matter because this is a self-evident truth that comes from the heart. So this is where the interior life gets disconnected from Christianity, right? Yeah. So you've been making the point up to this that the interior life and the expression of it and thinking about it, considering it, it's all rooted in Christianity. But now with Franklin scratching out the word sacred and putting self-evident in its place, you're saying that interior life is now disconnected from God, disconnected from religion, and instead is something that we own and we define apart from him. Yeah, that's exactly right. It wasn't enough to privatize religion. Now we had to have thinkers who stigmatized religion. So you just fast forward six more years. We're staying all in the 1700s right here. Six more years and you get to a thinker named Jean-Jacques Rousseau, everybody's favorite Frenchman. And he published, guess what? A autobiography that was incredibly popular. And interestingly, he stole his name from Augustine. It's called Confessions. Rousseau's autobiography is called Confessions as well. Now, did he intentionally take that from Augustine, or is that coincidence? Well, I think everybody knows it's not coincidence. He never acknowledges it in the book. He never says, hey, I took the title from Augustine. But Augustine's book was so famous, it was clear he was riffing on a theme, but he goes a very different direction than Augustine. Because according to Rousseau, yes, your internal life is there, but it's not just that your internal life is there. Your internal life is the most important thing about you. And in fact, he sees society and religion in particular as shackles, as chains that chain down the self and stop the self from expressing itself the way it would otherwise, as chains that deform the self and make the self do things it wouldn't do otherwise. And so Rousseau takes things a step further. He says, yes, of course your internal life matters. In fact, it's the only thing that really matters. And religion, which gave you the idea of an internal life, but of course he doesn't acknowledge that, religion is a shackle to that internal life and it needs to be cast off. And this is how you get to the French Revolution where you have people writing about the need to throw off government power that shackles the self and throw off religion. And perhaps no Frenchman summarized it better than Denis Diderot. And he said that he wished that all the world's high and noble would be hanged and strangled with the entrails of the priests. <laughs> so let Viva me, la self! Let me just make sure for the public school kids out there that I got it. Augustine writes his confession, and he's talking about the interior life in a way that really nobody else had, or at least not much, but he's talking about it in relationship with God. And so he sees the inner life connected to divine revelation and divine authority in his life. And but, his inner life is very much so a battle of the flesh, a battle against sin to be righteous. It's a battle between the flesh and the new man, Christ in him. Which makes sense because I'm pretty sure that the verse he opened up to in the Bible that ended up leading to him become a Christian was Romans 13, 14, which I think says, make no provision for the flesh. So he felt this battle of lust in his life. He's defining the self as moral or evil, and it's under God's authority. Now, you know, what are we talking about? 13, 1400 years later, we have Rousseau writing the same book. And instead of it being under God's authority, it's disconnected. Instead of God being the one who reigns over the inner life, now God is seen as a shadow that we have to overthrow so that the real inner self can come out, that is now what the God is. The God is self-expression. Yeah, and as the Declaration of Independence very clearly states, this is the job of the government. It's not to protect mm, your that's faith, interesting. right? Your faith is private. <laughs> the thing of most public interest is your inner life, and the government's job is to protect it. So now we see it circle back now to the assemblywoman from California. Yes. Who's saying the government needs to protect the child's right to affirm their own identity. Okay, we're going to end the private school stuff in just a moment. I'm going to do a quick rush through history because Keith has no hope of getting through this without my help. No, you do it. Okay, here we go. We have with Rousseau, the self, and the self is everything. And the next step forward comes with the English Romantic poets who were, as an English major, my favorite poets of the bunch. The English Romantics, they believed that not just poetry, but the fullest, truest life could be lived if you were expressing your emotions. And your emotional life was the centerpiece of yourself. It was the centerpiece of art, and it should be the centerpiece of public life. But we have to go one step further, because once we get to the Industrial Revolution, that begins to allow a middle class to develop and people can buy 
buy more and more stuff, which frees them from a lot of the menial labor that they once had to do so that they can pursue and think about their inner self. It sounds stupid, but a lot of these thinkers, to have time to think about your inner self, you can't do that if you're a menial laborer, if you're spending your whole time working outside. Simultaneously to that, you have people like Freud and the psychoanalysts who begin to suggest that sex and sexual desire and sexuality are actually the central drives of the inward self. We should spend way more time here, but we've gone from hey, don't get your inward self shackled and the government protects it to your inward self is the most important thing about you to now we take a step of and your inward self is defined by sex and sexuality. That is the core of who you are. And then by the time you reach the end of the 20th century, you can find U.S. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy writing in a Supreme Court decision at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. It actually kind of sounds like the Declaration of Independence the more I think about it, but let's keep going. He says, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood where they formed under compulsion of the state. And this is the opinion he wrote in Obergefell versus Hodges. He wrote this in the Casey case. Oh, and it became, though, the bedrock it became the logic. of what, yeah, it became the logic, that's a good way of saying it, of what ends up being Obergefell versus Hodges, because you're your interior life, you love who you love, and the state doesn't have any right to define that, right? So it makes total sense how you end up with the government feeling like they have to protect gay marriage, but not let a football coach pray on the field. Exactly, because what you feel on the inside is of public import, and what you believe religiously is private. It's so interesting that Christianity gave birth to this interior life, and now our culture doesn't even recognize when Coco Goff is praying what she's even doing. They don't even recognize <laughs> it, right? Exactly. The way I would say is where we're at now, we are still in so many ways a deeply Christian nation, but it's kind of like this. We kept the alphabet, but we lost the language. We have all these components and parts of Christianity, but we've reformed them into an entirely new way of speaking and thinking such that, just like you said, when we see someone praying, we have the alphabet for it. We have this idea of a internal life and that it matters, but we can't express what's actually happening, which is she's sitting there praying. Put differently, the Bible taught us the value of an inner life, but we sought off the values by which the Bible said that inner life could be measured. That's where we're at. I guess the reason we sought it off is because we didn't want any divine authority outside of ourselves ordering our inner life, telling us how we should live, saying things were right and wrong, that struggle between evil and good that Augustine dealt with. We didn't want that. We wanted to be able to do what we wanted to do, and that's why it was convenient to saw it off. But the problem is when you saw off Christianity, you saw off the inner life from Christianity, what gave it life, then... Yeah, you're sawing off the branch you're sitting on. So then what happens if we keep going down this road that the inner life will no longer be discussed, it won't be honored, it won't be protected, that you would combine politics and government again? Obviously, we don't have a crystal ball, so we'll see where we go. But I think it's a classic case of you take part of a thing and you make it a whole, and that's when it becomes so disastrous. I don't see a world where the government doesn't stop trying to defend people's right to express their internal feelings. The question is going to be, what happens when my internal feelings and expression come into combat with your internal feelings and expressions? And whose rights is the government going to defend in certain circumstances? And it's becoming increasingly clear that if your internal sense of what's right and wrong isn't totally rooted in the self, your own psychology. If it's coming from anywhere else, it's always going to take a backseat. It's always going to be the number two because what really matters is what comes from me and me alone. Isn't that kind of what we have in this battle between religious freedom? I'm saying a cultural battle, or maybe it's better to say a cultural argument between religious freedom and what you might call sexual rights or erotic rights. That I have these convictions that come from the Bible, come from God, come from outside myself. And you have this internal idea of who you are. And now the court has to adjudicate how do these two parties work together? And, you know, we're still seeing that play out, you know, so we're not at the end, we're at the very, very beginning of that. But which is the court, which is our society and culture going to honor? The divine authority or the internal authority? 
I think about Romans 1, where Paul talks about humans having a sense of God. They know that there's a God, and they understand that there is a vision of right and wrong, good and evil, but they deny God. They deny God's vision of good and evil, and Paul goes on to say that God gives them over to their sins, over to their sinful nature. In other words, one of the consequences of a society that says, hey, we value the internal life that Christianity gave us, but we're not interested in the values that Christianity has to offer, is selves being totally unhinged. And we can think about things like the transgender movement, but there's lots of other examples where we're seeing people people's selves just completely unleashed without any inhibition. Would this be like capitalism, consumerism? Oh, yeah. I define myself by what I buy and consume, and I'm just out there trying to make myself happy, or even kind of environmental degradation. I don't know, maybe that there's a sense of, I just want to live how I want to live, and I don't care about the consequences. Keith, let's just go back to where we started. We started with a question, which is, what's the proper place of faith in public life? Some Christians say faith has no place in public life. Some say it does have a place in public life. What I'm hoping you're hearing, if you're listening to this, is that the idea that religion doesn't have a place in public life, not only did that not make sense a long, long time ago, it only makes sense because we've accepted certain truths from Christianity while denying other truths. And all this happened like in the 1700s, right? That was the key hinge point. And is it also true that this applies mainly to Western thought? Yeah. In other words, if you went to the Southern Hemisphere or other parts of the world, they don't think like this. Either they don't value the inner life or they still see the inner life as under some sort of divine authority. Is yeah, that yeah. right? Well, it's you know, very Western European enlightenment oriented. Yeah, you know, there's the classic phrase weird, you know, Western, enlightened, industrial, rich, and democratic. It's an acronym. We're weird people. We're weird people. And the point of saying that we're weird people is to say in the history of the world, the way we think about the world is weird. And in the world itself, outside of Western society, the way we think is weird. But to us, it's a total given. And so my pushback to the superintendent who says that faith has no place in public life would be to say Christianity has become a victim of its own success. And I think as Christians, we have to go back to the Bible and realize that fundamentally our claim that Jesus is king is a political claim. It's a public claim. And so that is going to have an impact on our public life. We don't have to choose between faith being private or public, interestingly, Christianity merges those two things together and says, yes, of course it's an internal reality. We don't want a bunch of Christians who are dead on the inside walking around having a fake, empty faith. But on the other hand, it is a public claim. Jesus is saying that he rules and reigns over everything, and that's going to be a threat to every president, to every king, to every ruler in the world. Okay, school's over, baby. Thanks, teacher. That was awesome. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.